I decided on YouTube specifically that early on I wasn't going to be an expert. I was going to be an experimenter. And so I think the first one I ever did was like, I quit social media for 30 days. And that's when I realized, oh, that really works. Like if I just, if I just try a thing for 30 days and I track that experiment and show my experience doing it, like people really found that interesting. People clicked on it. People really got something out of it. What is up, you beautiful bastards? It is your boy, Yay Area, aka Rabbi Can't Lose, aka Noah Kagan. In today's episode, I talk to Matt Diavella. He is one of my favorite filmmakers. He takes extremely simple topics like waking up at 5 a.m. or quitting social media for 30 days and turns them into amazing mini documentaries. Matt has done this so well, his YouTube channel is now boasting 2.78 million subscribers, where he documents his life as a minimalist, filmmaker, and personal development experiments. But the story of how he got where he is today is even more fascinating. Matt started his career just maybe like you, with a lot of student debt. But instead of getting a job, he doubled down on freelance filmmaking, turning his side hustle into a six-figure business within five years of graduating. Then he decided to drop everything and make a feature-length documentary about minimalism, which he ended up selling to Netflix. And finally, he used that money from the documentary to bankroll his dream of making original content for podcast and YouTube. In this conversation, you're gonna enjoy three major things. The difference between an average freelancer and a six-figure freelancer. Two, how to know when you're ready to quit your job to pursue your passion. And three, the marketing tactics Matt used to build a die-hard fan base. Enjoy those three things, plus a bunch more ear nuggets along the way. Before we jump into the conversation, make sure to subscribe to my YouTube channel where I release three videos every week about business, marketing, and fear. In one of our last week's videos, I break down the exact system I use to set goals in my life and in my business. Go check it out at youtube.com slash okdork. Also, if you've been thinking about starting your own business, join monthly1k.com. We've helped over 10,000 people overcome fear and find success on their business journey. That's monthly1k.com. Also, a special pre-show shout out to a listener, Anissa Kirsch from Canada, the nicest country in the world. She left a review saying, awesome podcast, full of helpful business tips and great interviews. Thank you so much, Anissa, and every other listener just like you. I appreciate all your feedback. If you want a shout out in a future episode, just leave a review on iTunes, Spotify, or anywhere online. I check every single one. It's interesting. I mean, I guess kind of the first section of things that I was curious about is like below the iceberg. And, uh, you know, a lot of this is like the journey that we've all been on and the journey you're on and the people that, you know, consume your content, people consume my content, is that they never really see what happens in the kitchen. They don't see what's below the ocean. I guess, do you consider yourself success or, you know, how do you think about yourself? And like, I I was curious, kind of like the cost in the years to get to this point that people don't know about. Yeah, that's a great question. I think for me, at least figuring out and defining what success was, was reshaped by those early questions that I had. I think that was the biggest thing that I realized is that like, I could actually define what success looked like for myself. And oftentimes what we think is success doesn't exactly pay off on what we thought it was going to be. And so for me, it was, I thought that getting 15,000 subscribers would be like everything. That would be like the moment when I'd be like, oh, great, cool, perfect. Everything will be great. All my problems will be solved. And we always do this. We always create these if-then statements that it's like, once I get this lens, then my videos are going to look perfect and all that. And it really never fulfills it. So I think that you have to really look internally to define that success and to feel good about yourself, feel good for, in my case, making the videos that I want to make. I really have to be proud of what I'm making. 
and not always just look at the views, especially now that my my videos and my subscriber count have risen quite a bit. Uh, my journey into creating original content and, and really finding, and we could define even success like from like a surface level as on YouTube as being able to make a full time living making videos. I think like to me that comes down to it. You hear a lot of stand up comedians say that like if I could just make a living telling jokes and being on stage, then like, that's the bar. That's what everybody I think should be striving for. And uh, you know, maybe the bar is low, but I don't think it is because there's so many people who are living in jobs that they really hate and they're miserable. And you know, of course there, there's exceptions and there's people that enjoy their job and love their job. And I've met maybe two of them. <laughs> and then there's a lot of people that would much prefer to be working for themselves. And they'd much be prefer to be doing their own thing. And so to me, it's like if you can really find something that you have a passion for or you enjoy or you just really love and you wake up excited to do that thing every day, as cliche as that sounds, I think being able to just pay your bills, making videos or writing blog posts like that to me is a dream. So, you know, I started out as to give you just like the cliff notes of my backstory, like I started out doing freelance filmmaking in college. I did bar mitzvahs, wedding videos, anything I could do, like local TV commercials, just to pay the bills and also help to help pay off that $97,000 in student debt that I graduated with. And then it was probably the course of about five years, six years, just really pouring myself into that, growing the business, ended up doing well. I made six figures a year from it eventually. And I was able to pay off a majority of my debt. And then I was ready for like that next challenge, like going full-time freelance was a challenge itself. But then it was, okay, what if, you know, I dropped everything and I made my first feature length documentary, which I ended up doing. And I teamed up with my friends who run a website called The Minimalists. And we made this documentary called Minimalism. And it was really one man band. It was me shooting and editing everything. And I just poured myself into that project for about two years. You know, there was some overlap. I'm working freelance and I'm picking up jobs and then I'm doing this film. But there were stints where I just be months at a time working on nothing but this film and then it blew all of our expectations away. We ended up, you know, after we made it, we ended up putting on iTunes. It went to number one. I think it caught Netflix's attention from there. They picked it up. It was trending on their site. Beyond all of our expectations, it got millions of views. And, you know, I luckily was able to make my $10,000 back that I invested into it, but then to also have some runway to be able to step back and say, okay, what do I actually want to do now? Now that the dust is settled, the film is out there and it's done well. Like if I could do anything regardless of money, because I had this runway, what would I do? And that's when I decided to lean into creating original content, making a podcast, doing a YouTube channel, doing all these things that I actually thought at the time were going to be impossible. But I was like, dude, I just have to try. Like I would regret it for the rest of my life if I didn't take the next few years and really dig in and try to make it work. And so I certainly stumbled through that that first year or so but i think it was like the 10 years of experience i had as a filmmaker going into it that helped me to gain some traction rather quickly i guess one thing my cousin's a video freelancer i was wondering like what's the difference between him who it's not really working out for versus a six-figure freelancer that's a great question i think that that was one thing that i noticed early on and i think it's one thing that inspired me to start talking about the behind the scenes stuff like the under the iceberg stuff on my podcast was that I saw people who were far more talented than myself, uh, especially early on when I was really just kind of figuring things out and like starting to make a couple hundred bucks here and there. But I saw people that were so talented and yet they couldn't get the business side of things down. 
And I think that like, there's a lot that goes into that. I think doubt holds a lot of people back. I think the uncertainty of not getting work, because as every freelancer knows, you have good times and you have bad times and being able to stomach it and push through, I think is huge. I think it was my interest in entrepreneurship and reading books by Seth Godin, maybe even books by Malcolm Gladwell, and just always being curious and always trying to, you know, Tim Ferriss, so many other people where I've read their books and it's given me perspective. I didn't have a lot of mentors early on. I had my sister who we were both freelancers and we certainly learned from each other and we shared experiences, which is invaluable to talk through things. But then the next best thing for me was reading books. And so I wasn't as interested in like reading a book by Martin Scorsese about how he makes an amazing film. I was more interested in how do I grow a successful business? How do I deal with clients? How do I figure out how to, you know, upsell to my clients to get more business, to get clients to come back? And like, I think like the biggest thing was just always delivering. And like, I had a bunch of early mistakes early on where, you know, I had this one event that I filmed for Red Bull and it was like the marketing company had paid me to, like, it wasn't Red Bull. So I want to save their face here, but it was like the marketing company that they hired. I had shot this event. It went great. Everything was amazing. And then I asked the guy, I was like, oh, do you want me to edit this footage as well? I'd be happy to edit it. And he said, yeah, absolutely. That'd be great. And then I went away for like three days to a cabin in the middle of the woods. Uh, It was like I was planning on doing the trip anyway. And I was like, oh, I'll just edit this video over that three days. But I failed to ask the client what the deadline was, when he expected it, what's the budget going to be, all these important questions. But I was like, I mean, I was probably 20 years old, 21 years old at the time. I was just getting started. I had no idea I needed to ask those questions. And so when I got back from that trip, I had about 20 missed calls. He was like, you've Oh, like, like I needed this project turned around in 24 hours and here my expectations of what he wanted didn't align with what he actually wanted. And he was like, he was objectively an asshole, uh, how he was speaking to me. <laughs> but, but at the same time, I like learned a lesson. I was like, cause for me, I was like, this project will be huge because I saw every client I got, especially a marketing company who's working with big brands. I'm like, dude, they could get me so much more work in the future if I knock this out of the park and I failed and I screwed up and then I never worked with them again. And so what could have been a retained client where I'm making three to $4,000 a month from them turned into $0. And you know, as you get into freelance, you also snowball. So every client you get could potentially lead to recommendations if you continue to deliver. So you always have to deliver the highest quality you can, manage the relationship. There's so much more to it that so many people just think it's price. That's, and that's all they're worried about. But there's like, that's just the surface. Everything else is so much more important than price. How did you deal with the doubt? of no clients. Again, I think I would go back to like these books. I'm learning from other people's experiences, like Chris Guillebeau and others who I followed early on reading blogs and reading their books. And they were just instrumental to me understanding, hey, like this is going to happen. There's going to be slow periods. There's going to be doubt. And the only way you're going to be able to make it is just to push through. I think another thing was discovering minimalism early on, living below my means, understanding that success to me wasn't proving anything to anyone else. I was really smart about my money and I was super conservative with with my spending. And so I didn't need to make six figures to make a full-time living. I mean, especially when I downsized and moved in with my parents. I think that was actually one of those things that I don't think about much anymore. But at the time, it was the best decision I ever made because it allowed me to take more risks and it allowed me to say no. So there were so many clients that would come to me that I wasn't 
inspired by them. And also they had no budget. <laughs> like if you're coming to me and you're like, Hey, $300 to work on this video for a week, then I, w- I could easily just say, sorry, you know, that my budgets start at 4k or 5k, whatever it was at the time. And I think being able to do that allowed me to, you know, narrow in on bigger budget clients, but also start to narrow in on clients that I love to work with. And, you know, like I said, one thing led to another I, early client I had was a company called Vidler and you're in the startup world. So you might've heard of them. They were uh, like, they were YouTube's competitor back in the day, like back in 2006 or seven. So they both started around the same time. They were one of my earliest clients that led to me doing a spotlight, like a testimonial video with a company called Envision, which ended up being like one of the biggest startups and design companies mm. who ended up funding a feature length documentary called Design Disruptors, where I was able to direct and produce the whole thing. So it's like, again, you think about it from the perspective of me screwing up that Red Bull shoot. If I had actually nailed that, like how many other clients I would have gotten, my life would have completely changed. And so I guess that's the advice. Just don't screw up. <laughs> <laughs> or screw up Red Bull. How do you know? Because I mean, like on one hand, like that led you to where you are now. Exactly. And I think uh, obviously I'm, I'm kind of joking with the don't make mistakes because I'm actually working on a video that, about that now, how like mistakes are actually important. We just need to learn from them. And so when you make that mistake, you just have to take that lesson to heart and figure out how you could. It's so easy to blame the other person. Oh, well, that like that client was, you know, he should have communicated. He should have done this, done that. And like, actually, you could have been a proactive communicator and solve those problems before they happened. And so I think, yeah, certainly need to learn from the mistakes and, and just try not to make the same one twice, as they say. Yeah, man. I think the wisdom comes with the wrinkles. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Do. More and more as we get older. Dude, amen. That's why I, I got to take collagen. But I, dude, I'm like, I got a whole face routine now as I'm almost 40. It's like a full face masks and all this stuff. Dude, that's so funny you say that because like my wife is Asian and she's like super into skincare. And so she like has just recently gotten me into it. She like, and you know, she, she understands me. Like I'm super into, this is Enneagram. It's like type ones where this is right. And there's a wrong and there's a structure and there's process to everything. And that's very much how I think. And so she printed a post-it and she wrote on the top of it, like Matt's skincare routine. And she's like branded it as a routine that I now do every morning and night. And she set up like the four little things I got to put toner on and lotion and like, she's really into it. And uh, I was like, Oh, this is actually nice. And last night I was putting it on like, again, I like it's this sounds like really corny. <laughs> this is definitely not going to earn us any street cred talking about this. No, dude, this is but it. it was like, <laughs> but yeah, yeah, this is actually what changes everything. But it was like, I was like, Oh, I'm being kind to myself. Like I like, you know what I mean? I'm like yeah. massaging this lotion in my face. I just, I'm like, this feels nice. I'm like, Normally, I'm so hard on myself, and I'm like, now I'm taking some time. I'm like leaning into this whole self-love movement, which I like. I don't know. As somebody who's so critical of myself, I always found a hard time leaning into that. The harshest critic we know is ourselves. Yeah, that's I think one thing that I continue to struggle and work with. And like, I know from my perspective, especially when you look back at old work that you've done, to be kind to yourself and to know that you were growing, and even like today and and videos I've done weeks ago, it's like understanding that you continue to learn from each of these. It's so hard though, because the inner critic in me is just like, that was garbage. That was terrible. Like you need to do better. Yeah, certainly something I'm, you know, continue to work on. I feel you on that, uh, the harshest critic, man. Like I was thinking to myself as I'm, I became single recently and I was like, man, I'm just going to date myself the rest of this year. <laughs> I was just going to like, why don't you just like hang out with you, enjoy you, take yourself out to dinner. Like buy yourself some flowers, you know, like just be a nice person to yourself. And and I think that's true for a lot of us uh, that have high expectations. Yeah. I mean, dude, I, like, again, 
I was so resistant to like the self-love thing because I think self-deprecation was, it's just like that to me, like when I learned how to like make fun of myself and not take myself so seriously when I was younger, because I think when you're, when you're like 16, 17, when I got my first job working at a grocery store and people start making fun of you or, you know, poking jabs at you, everybody deals with like this, like bullying and name calling in, in high school and, and even middle school. And I think it was like, you know, it was pulling the M&M where like he uh, was in eight mile where he like does the whole freestyle making fun of himself. <laughs> and he's like, now nah, you can't have anything to make fun of me. by." <laughs> and uh, I don't know, to a degree that like uh, I think it works. But then, you know, you still have to make room to be kind to yourself and totally. to also have gratitude for the things that you have and what you've been able to accomplish. And even like the little wins and the little bit of growth that you get, even totally. if you're not like seeing leaps and bounds over the course of a year, you can be like, wow, like I really have learned a lot over the past year. Well, the two things you triggered for me is sometimes in money or in view counts or things like that, or like your weight, it's really easy to see progress. But lately I've been thinking about like, what are the things that I'm progressing on that are harder to see? And that's been interesting to kind of experience. And then yesterday I was, I was playing chess and you could tell I lost my voice because I was screaming. I'm like a hardcore chess player. And my brother's like, dude, be a ninja. Ninjas don't get mad when they lose. But I thought what was really fascinating, I was laying in bed last night and I was like, man, you played a lot of chess. I played like an hour and a half yesterday. And I specialized in like one minute chess, like the, the blitz chess. It was so fascinating. I was like, man, you're getting really upset when you lose, but how are you reacting when I win? And I was like, I don't do anything. I just kind of go on to the next game. And it was kind of an interesting moment. I was like, maybe let's calm down on the losing and not boost or boast like I'm the best ever winning, but like, hey, I won. Like, I'm proud of myself, but I'm, I'm so fixated on the lost ones. I think that's how humans are. We always focus on the losses more than the wins. And I think they've done research on this too with gamblers where it's the losses that stick with you. And those, you know, the, the fear of losing $100 or actually losing $100 impacts you so much more than the win of $100. And you see this with something like YouTube comments or any form of feedback. I can scroll through my YouTube comments and... The one thing that I've actually been amazed by is when you do grow intentionally and when you do have integrity and you you don't resort to clickbait or misleading somebody about the content and you don't make sensational content itself, you can actually create a really supportive community on YouTube. And I didn't realize that at the time. <laughs> like when I first started, you just are terrified of what anybody's going to say in the comments from your video, whether it's two comments or a hundred. But now when I start to like look through, right, and I start to look at these comments that I get, I could go through a hundred comments and like a hundred amazing, nice, beautiful comments. Like a lot of people just adding to the discussion. And then you get that one comment where somebody's like, this is stupid. Like you're played out or whatever. Like, you know what I mean? Like you said the same last week. And then you're like, you just get this pain in your stomach and your gut. And I think that that's something that over time, that voice gets smaller, that pain kind of fades. But, you know, I won't lie that every time you, you get some negative feedback, it hurts a little bit. And it, it you have to really figure out how to assess that. And like you say, like be a ninja and, and be okay with it. Be like, because I think that we can't be blind to feedback. And I think if we are, then we'll lose sight of what our audience really wants and what our customers want. And so for me, it's certainly being open-minded, paying attention to what people are saying, but not taking it to heart and really just paying attention to the whole picture of like how my audience is responding. How do you think you've created such like a hardcore fan base? What do you think the elements are that you've created such a, a great community? Honesty is huge. And I think honesty for me came from 
this wasn't revolutionary by any means. And like we were talking about, so many other people have, have made this connection far before I did. But it was, I decided on YouTube specifically that early on, I wasn't going to be an expert. I was going to be an experimenter. And so there is this misconception, or at least I had this belief in me that I had to be an expert on every single thing that I talked about on YouTube, which would limit my topics to like three. I'm like, all right, I can talk about minimalism. I can talk about filmmaking and like, I don't know, maybe there's like business and freelance. And then as I opened that up and I started to allow myself to say, okay, you know, what if I just start, and this was really like a big, after my initial surge and growth, I think the second surge came from doing these 30-day experiments where I was like, uh, you know, I tried waking up at 5 a.m. every day. And it's like the titles are super utilitarian and so straightforward, and somehow they work really well. And I think maybe that is also a reaction to the over-sensationalism that often pops into YouTube videos and content online in general. Mm. But it was like, you know, I took cold showers for 30 days. I think the first one I ever did was like, I quit social media for 30 days. And that's when I realized, oh, that really works. Like if I just, if I just try a thing for 30 days and I track that experiment and show my experience doing it, like people really found that interesting. People clicked on it. People really got something out of it, but I wouldn't have been able to do those things if I felt like I need to be a sleep researcher if I'm going to talk about sleep and waking up early. You know what I mean? And I thought like, oh, I could actually bring in my documentary experience and just like everybody else is doing, like interview experts, talk with other people. And then I could, you know, put that into my video and really find the lane that I that I want to head with it and like allow myself to fail publicly and then just be honest with people about my experience through it. And so, you know, I did about 11 to 12, 30 day experiments. And if something didn't work for me, like, well, waking up at 5 a.m. every day for 30 days was actually a nightmare. And like it was especially on weekends and travel and through daylight savings time, it was a complete mess. And just letting people know, hey, that didn't work out. Trying journaling for 30 days. You know what? I really didn't find a ton of value in journaling every day, maybe a couple times a month, but not every day. Mm. And I think just being honest and letting people know when you didn't enjoy something, if you're the person that like, journaling changed my life forever and like you you say that for everything then i think people start to call bullshit and see right through the fact that you're just trying to actually you know you're just trying to get more views you're right though i think as i'm doing content and, and being more public lately it's like i have to show the certain side i don't know if anyone's out there saying hey i'm going to lie to my audience but i think they're maybe lot they're not realizing they're lying yeah exactly and i think that comes with to like selling and knowing that we do need to sell, you know, whether I'm sending somebody to Patreon or I'm doing an integration in my video. Obviously, we want to make a full time sustainable income doing this. And I think people often think you have to be like seen as the expert, as the person that knows everything about this. And I think like the way to solve for that really is to when you're maybe creating a product or whatever, it's to if you aren't already become an expert, really learn about that thing, understand it, create the best product you can from it. And then when you actually talk about it, you are an expert. So I mean, it's like you just have to sell products that you believe in and that you can stand by and that you know will actually help people, in which case I don't think you have to worry about lying. And then like with all the other content and everything else that we make, because it's I don't think we should always be selling all the time in every single piece of content we do. I think those are the instances where you can open yourself up and you can just be vulnerable and you can let people know when when you've screwed up and when you failed. And I think I enjoy hearing that because I love like hearing people's early mistakes and fumbles because I think we can all relate to that. And it also you think, oh, well, if that person screwed up, if this person started out and like they didn't see success for a year, 
then I might also, because then there's this, you know, that expectation. If you, a lot of times as viewers and as readers of books, we tend to project this mythology to the people that we're reading. And we think that, oh, they are productivity gods or they like are amazing. Like they have never failed when it comes to building habits. And I think that honesty is the only way for people to really, because like the, the moment you face a problem, you know, the moment, if I said that I'm perfect at building habits and I've figured it out, then somebody else tries to go and do that and they face tons of resistance and they screw up like crazy and they're like, well, something's wrong with me. It's like, no, actually something is just wrong with humans <laughs> and we all need to figure out how the hell, uh, how the hell to, to be live productive lives. Yeah. Productive fulfilled. For sure. It is funny. I've shared a little bit when I, I do office hours each week and when I talk about my fears or my failures, everyone always gets so excited. Not that they want me to fail. <laughs> I think it's that they they're it's, they're not alone and that that we're all going through it together. Yeah, I think so. I talked a little bit about my story and about making this feature film and then being able to pause and you know having some runway financially to ask myself what would I do regardless of money. And I was really really fortunate that I had already found it that making films itself fulfilled me and it wasn't the response or the result it wasn't like you know trending or growing a huge audience that was fulfilling to me it was just the making of the videos and like you know so many people say this but you if you don't truly enjoy what you're doing then you're going to burn out quicker than anybody or you're just going to give up before you ever you know make any progress and so for me i think a large part of creativity comes with looking at the same topics, the same ideas in a different way, trying to figure out a way for me as a filmmaker to make these topics, whether it's habit change or procrastination or experimentation and, and make it interesting and fun and put my own spin on it, add sketches and comedy and all this other stuff. Uh, although my, my wife likes to say that my videos are mildly entertaining. <laughs> She's like, you know, it's, it's, it, you'll like chuckle to yourself maybe when you watch a couple videos, but for the most part, it's like, am I enjoying the process? Uh, does this feel like a drag or am I really enjoying it? And I try to lean into that as much as possible. And so making films certainly is where I find fulfillment and it's where I've always found fulfillment. And like, obviously there's a lot that goes into that. I think being able to release a film that helps somebody that impacts somebody else's life is just an added layer that keeps me going because, you know, like truly when you, when you hear from people who like, a video or an idea, just as I was inspired by Leo Bouts and Tim Ferriss and all these other guys early on, to be able to be that person for other people is really fulfilling. And, and certainly it feels really, really good to be that person in somebody else's life. When did you notice the inflection? When did you notice that you're not the person reading the blog post, you're the person writing the blog post, you're the person making the film that's doing that? To a degree, I'm still the person, I'm on both sides now. Like I, I still try to, to learn as much as I can and continue to read books. It's not, I don't have the appetite that I did when I was younger because I think, you know, like when you when you read enough entrepreneurial books, you, you kind of get the gist of it and you're like, okay, I need to actually put this into practice and I need to do it for myself. So I, I certainly do put more time into creation now than I do in terms of consumption. But my inflection point was really... Again, there's no overnight success. There's no shortcuts. For me, it took about eight to 10 years of filmmaking and freelancing, working on the craft, growing slowly over that time to get to the point where I was ready to make that film. And then after that film, a couple of years went by and then I was ready to start the YouTube channel. And it was a year of using all that you know experience I had 
and just failing and, and slowly growing over that time. And then there was an inflection point which came through experimentation, trying different things. Like for a year, I had done the same thing. I was making a podcast and I was uploading it to YouTube. I was uploading excerpts. I was like doing the Joe Rogan model. And I was like, okay, that's what's going to work for me. I do one podcast and I break it out into all these other pieces of content and I share it on social. And there was a certain amount of growth to that, but not something that would create a sustainable income from. And so for me, really, I think the, the change happened about a year in, literally about a year and two months into when I started. I noticed that some people were making videos about like their minimalist apartment, like apartment tour and all this stuff. And I was like, that's interesting. Like I could make a short edited video on like, I'm a minimalist. I have an apartment. Like, let me just make a video about my minimalist apartment. So that's exactly the video I put out. And I was super thoughtful and intentional about this video. I, you know, I wrote it out. I planned it. I like added some jokes and, and humor where I could. And I did really high quality cinematography everything that I learned over the past 10 years, I put it into this video and it just hit a bit of a wave. And in, within a week, it had 20,000 views. Within a couple months, it ended up having a couple hundred thousand views. And eventually that video got over a million views. And again, just completely blown away by the response. I was like, oh my God, wow. Like, and it also like reshifted my priorities. It was that inflection point. I was like, wow, this is what I need to do more of. If I want to grow a channel and grow an audience that's sustainable, I need to focus more on like high quality, thoughtful, you know, less is more approach to creating content. Just one amazing video every week versus 10 excerpts that were pretty good. And then that's when my audience really started to grow and to gain traction. I guess one thing in your journey is that you're a 20 year old freelancer. You got six figures, which is amazing. I guess, how did you know you were ready for the next chapter at that point? Versus, you know, continuing on that path. I think you'll never feel totally ready. But I do think that, I don't know who said it, but it's something about like, you know, have your parachute before you make the jump. <laughs> so like being really thoughtful and intentional about when to make that jump. Because if you don't really plan accordingly, then you'll just end up right back where you started. And so again, that's really thinking financially. I think that's probably the biggest factor because when you face those moments of, of doubt and like the month of not getting any work or two months or more, you need to be able to actually pay the bills and, and get by. I mean, certainly I recommend if you can move back home with your parents, uh, if you're, I don't care if you're 20, if you're 30, whatever, if you want to make something happen, like cut your bills down as low as you possibly can. If you really want to make the leap and take the jump, whether it's from a full-time job to freelance or from freelance to creating your own original content, I think it just comes making those decisions intelligently and being self-aware enough to know whether you're ready and you're ready to go all in. Because like, yes, you can do that overlap where you're working nights and mornings before work and you're working weekends, but like you can only do that for so long before you burn out. And also, I know you said you had Ali Abdal on uh, your podcast recently who like absolutely love that dude. He's like phenomenal, so brilliant. And it's been so awesome to see his channel grow over the past year or two. But he, I don't know how he does what he does, right? He like works full time as a doctor and then he makes YouTube videos and three amazing YouTube videos a week. Uh, not many people have that kind of stamina. I know that I certainly don't. And I think it, it takes being honest with yourself. Like how long could I do this? How long could I keep a side hustle uh, going before I need to actually put everything in and, and really reach for it and go all in on this thing? I think your message, which really it resonates and I love hearing it as a reminder and, you know, I, I think for me, I read a lot of books as well. I'm always looking for the secret. I'm like, what's the secret to the relationship? What's the secret to how this guy got rich or this girl got rich? And a lot of it is just 
find something you enjoy doing and do that for the rest of your life. <laughs> and, I, and I like your message as well, which is keep your costs low so you're not pressured to have to go do other things. Yeah. And I think that what you find is that you, you're actually not really missing out on anything. You know, I think that if you truly look within for happiness, as opposed to trying to fill that hole with buying stuff that you don't need to prove to other people that you're successful, I think it's not going to pay off. It's, and, and, you know, through hedonic adaptation, we're always coming back to that baseline. We, yes, it feels great to buy a new car, to get a new computer and it's like fun. And the keys are super like clicky and like everything feels great about that new thing. And like, I would be lying if I said it, it doesn't feel great to buy new things and to have new things, but you have to understand that you're going to eventually go back to a new normal. We've all experienced this, like that new car that you buy, unless like maybe you're like a car junkie and like that's your thing and you absolutely love cars, then eventually you're just going to get used to it and it's going to become normal. And in three years, you're going to be like, ah, I want to get a new lease. I'm going to get a new car. And so being honest with yourself and knowing that that thing isn't going to give you long-term happiness and what's really going to give you fulfillment and happiness in the long run is like you said, finding something that you love doing and just showing up and doing that as much as you can. I started seeing a relationship therapist this week and she's like, Noah, you live your life on the, with the fast forward button on. She was like, that's fine. It's helped you do a lot of things that you've wanted to accomplish, but maybe there's something there if you just hit play and you just enjoy like the slower versions of life. And I think there's this thing where, you know, everyone, maybe people are on the opposite side of that. But for me, it's like, I want the next thing. I, I notice I do that with work. Like, all right, when I get this many subscribers, when I get this thing, when I get, and lately I'm trying to force slowness and force appreciation into the process. And it's challenging, but I'm noticing, I'm noticing some benefits. I totally feel you. And I'm in that same boat where I've always been very ambitious. And so for me, there was always this tug of war between minimalism and hustle. And, you know, hustle gets a bad rap. And to a degree, it deserves a part of the bad rap because, like, you know, people just blindly shout out that word, you got to hustle, like, you got to work hard, work your ass, blah, blah, blah. But then there's a balance to that. And I think minimalism has helped to kind of be that other force that has gotten me in check and allowed me to be more mindful and to set boundaries on my work and to how much I can do every day and to understand that I would rather look towards those long-term milestones to say like, okay, how much can I accomplish in a year versus today or this week? And I think that allows me to go a little bit easier on myself than I otherwise would. Have you thought about your next chapter? Yeah, the next chapter is in the works. Uh, wish I could talk about it. <laughs> um, I have like a big launch that's coming probably uh, next month uh, that I've been working on for a very long time that I'm super excited about. And I'm also working on another feature-length film for Netflix. And that's going to probably come out at the end of the year. So for me right now, it's been balancing this big passion project that I'm working on, the film, and then doing YouTube videos. And again, I'm like, I'm in that mode, that hustle mode where I'm like sprinting towards the finish line, which, uh, you know, I think is vital and essential when you're creating something big and something that's bigger than yourself. And so I am like really in sprint mode. But then once I get to that finish line, like again, trying to enjoy the process as much as I can, because I've certainly hated that process in the past, taking a little bit of breaks here and there where I need it. But then I think once I release the, these next couple projects, it's going to shift gears down and I'm probably going to cruise for a little bit and enjoy a couple months of just making YouTube videos and, uh, you know, taking a few weeks off and just kind of enjoying the downtime. But yeah, it's, I think 
I heard it from Rich Roll first, where he's like, I kind of see uh, finding balance kind of like seasonal, where it's like mm. I might be in different periods of my life throughout the year, where right now I'm in work mode, but then after that, it's going to be family and focus and um, downtime. And so right now I'm in work mode and I'll certainly be able to shift gears in a couple months. One of the things I admire is that you have, how do I say it? You have very simple topics that like, if you were to say, Noah, make a video about coffee, make a video about waking up at 5 a.m. Mine would be like a 20 second. Yeah, coffee. Good. I had it. I like it. What are the, the ways that people, all of us can create better stories? Because I think in sales, I think in relationships, I think a lot of it is storytelling of sorts. And it, uh, I was curious more your process or just like guidance about how to do that as a better job. Yeah, that's a great question. And it's definitely something I've given a lot of thought to. I think, okay, a couple of things. I, I think that there's two type of creators. There's the freelancer and then the writer and or no, not, not the freelancer, sorry, the freestyler. So somebody who like just riffs off the top of their head, like Gary Vee is the perfect example of this. He's somebody who's brilliant, turn on the camera and he'll like give these amazing nuggets of wisdom. And I thought that that's what my approach was going to be early on because I watched it and I enjoyed it. But then when I it came to practice and, you know, when I turned the camera on, I just it wasn't engaging and I was self-aware enough to know that I needed to make a change. And so that's where writing and planning really became a critical part of telling really engaging stories. So I really I, I sat down and I, and I started to just plan out my videos, write them, go into as much detail as I can. And also to, to get creative with it, it's very easy to, the first pass is always going to be awful. I mean, any writer will, will tell you that like, you cannot stop at your first version of something. I write my first version of something to like, give me some structure, give me some idea of where it's going. And then it's tweaking and changing and tweaking and changing and continuing to hone in on, on what feels right. I think one little piece of advice would be never repeat yourself, or at least try not to repeat yourself. This is something that happens all the time in YouTube videos. Uh, this is actually advice that I got from the editor of Helvetica. She was just basically like she watched my film and she saw like this was the original film Minimalism. She gave some some feedback and criticism on it uh, that was super constructive. But she's like, you're you know, your main protagonists say the same thing four times in the movie. She's like, audiences are smart. You don't need to like re keep reinforcing this thing. So if you are going to repeat yourself, you can do it, but do it with intention. Like it, it's to really hammer in a point or it's to recap something at the end of the video. But otherwise, I think sometimes in YouTube videos, people tend to just ramble on. And since they didn't plan their video out enough and they didn't really know where they were gonna go with something, they'll just say the same thing four times in the same video. So I try not to do that to the best I can. And then I always think about the pace and the flow of the video, adding creativity and thinking about the engagement throughout. So if you just look at the breakdown of my videos, it comes from, I think my inherent strengths and weaknesses, like I have a strength of editing and telling engaging stories. A weakness would be just riffing on camera about a particular topic. I'm just like you, like if I just were to turn on the camera and start talking about the benefits of waking up at 5 a.m., I wouldn't get very far. So that's where it, for me, it was planning it out, writing down. And, and I mean, something like that is an easier video to do because it was an experiment and I'm tracking the journey. And so I'm showing that process. You know, I would see so many videos on cold showers. And even like I tried cold showers for 30 days and it's just them on camera talking about them taking cold showers for 30 days. And so I think what's people want to see you show them the process. They don't want to hear you tell that you the process as much. Mm. So for that video, I opened up with my first shower for 30 days. It was me hopping like, here we go. Let's do this. And I hop in that cold shower and I'm like, oh, my God, it's so cold. <laughs> exactly what you would expect it to be. <laughs> but I think people like to see that they want to see what's actually happening in it. 
And then, you know, when you plan these videos out, you can think about what comes first, what, how you want to introduce these certain topics, how to get layered and to go more into depth, how music and pacing when you're editing can kind of shift the narrative or create more focus on something that you're talking about. Like sometimes the music can be the piece itself. It can really drive that sequence or that montage together, or it could just be in the background and you don't even notice it's happening. And so like, there's so many different things that go into an edit to make it great. But I think the last thing that I would say is that you have to be able to change when things aren't working. So I will write out a video, plan it out. Of course, there's like some improv and uh, like spontaneity thrown in it, especially if it's something like an experiment video where a lot of it's just vlog style, me talking about my experience throughout the process. But once you go to edit it, you have to be willing to throw out whatever is not working. And so if you thought this was going to be a really funny sketch, but then when you shoot it and edit it and, you know, put it up on the computer and you start watching it and you're like, oh my God, this is so corny. Like, this is so embarrassing. I think it takes that intuition to figure out what to get rid of. And so I may have spent a half a day working on a particular part of a video and realized that it is not working at all and I need to throw it out. And I think that's the hardest thing for a creative to do. But I don't think it's wasted time because I think you it took you that long to figure out the direction to head with it. So it's a messy process at times. But I think, again, that intuition comes through practice and through showing up every day and finding what's working, what's not, and just being guided by that intuition. How much is the finished product different than your plan? I guess it depends on the, the kind of videos you're making. So I love this one quote, you know, if your story doesn't change along the way, then you're not listening. And so I think that's super, yeah. That <laughs> I great. think that's super... Yeah, 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 yeah. When I heard it, I was like, oh my God, <laughs> especially for documentary filmmaking, like you can't go into it with all the expectations about what you're going to get. You can't avoid a certain amount of expectations, but being able to change when you, when you get a new interview, uh, this has happened for so many videos that I've done. And, you know, for instance, I've already talked about it, but like the waking up at 5 a.m. every day, I had an expectation that I was going to be crazy productive and that was really going to change the way that I worked and I was going to fall in love with it and always wake up at 5 a.m. every single day. And then I was so unproductive because I had I was sleep deprived and I wasn't as focused and I just truly didn't enjoy waking up that early. And the rigidness of the schedule didn't work for me. Like I want to be able to sleep in on weekends and have late nights and go out for drinks and all that. So I think that was certainly a big learning lesson for me was, um, you know, just being able to adapt and change as you get that new feedback. Um, with other videos, it's just like you just have to kind of throw a bunch of stuff at the wall, a bunch of shit at the wall and see what sticks and see what feels right. So much of, of writing and, and filmmaking is editing out stuff. Oh my God, when we did Design Disruptors, uh, my second documentary, we had about 60 or 70 interviews with 20 different tech companies. And there's like political things involved where like, we got to have this person in the film because like, you know, they're, they're from such and such company. But then at the same time, you're like, how do you carve and craft those 60 interviews, those hundreds of hours of interview footage and all this B-roll and all of these graphics and it's more about what you take out of these films and projects than it is what you actually put in. Yeah, because I, I think where I've had a lot of success and not, just more fulfillment and enjoyment is in like startups and business. And, and I've been exploring the sharing part and the storytelling part about these experiences and, and also sharing stories like yourself. So 
you know, I'm like, how do I tell a better story? How do I craft it? And it's been a, it's been an experiment. I'm trying to be focusing a little bit more on the journey and like, let's just keep enjoying this process versus like, let me just get to how many people are going to watch this thing. Uh, are which, you focusing pretty heavily on YouTube now? I, I yes. was poking around it a little bit and watching some videos today. Yeah. Yeah. What was your experience or perception or feedback? Yeah, I know. I thought it was solid. I mean, I think that you're super natural on camera. I think that it's difficult to know what goes into the the behind the scenes and I kind of what what is the intention of making the video? I guess, well, how much do you plan your videos when you go into it? Are they pretty well formulated? Or is it a bullet point? What's kind of that process? It's been an evolution. So I'd say like when I basically during coronavirus, a few people came to me and said, hey, you know, the videos you've put out or the stuff that your business, your company's put out has really helped me. And I was like, really? Me? Then I felt like I can actually help a lot of people that are unemployed or people that are afraid or people that want to start businesses. And so I just started getting my iPhone out and recording and just started doing like, hey, here's things you should do if you're struggling during this recession or during this uh, pandemic. And then I think what's been interesting is exploring professionalism. Like what is the difference between an amateur and a hobbyist? And so in the content, and I think what I'm noticing though is that as you become more professional, it's also more structured, but also sometimes that structure kind of discourages me. And so I think I'm trying to figure out where that lives. So now a lot of like the videos, the, some of the, which video, the email marketing for beginners video, I mean, it was very scripted. With that video, did you know like the cutaways and like some of the, the videos that you might cut away to, or is that, you found that in post? So the, the editor, Michael, put those in post. The thing that we didn't do on that video that we're doing now in future videos is kind of like the Pixar approach. So there's basically, we're doing three types of video, but for that kind of video in the future, it'd be like he does his first run through and then like the whole team gets together and be like, let's just dissect the entire video before we put it out there. So now we're trying three different styles. So I think what you've noticed for yourself is you found the dish that you like to do. One approach is doing an interview like this. And then how do we take an interview like this and make it actually an entertaining The Bachelor thing to watch? Because on YouTube, it's not really like if I just sat and talked about coffee for 10 minutes, it has to be pretty damn good, amazing for someone to want to watch that for 10 minutes versus yours is it's packaged. Obviously, that comes from just my background of filmmaking. But I, I think also what might be interesting, too, is like for anybody uh, who wants to see how I've grown is to look at some of the early videos that I did and just kind of how it's changed. And mm. also, just like you said, the experimentation that, that never ends. And I think actually what I find from a lot of YouTubers and, and I've, you know, just had a few conversations with, with a couple recently who they had started separate side YouTube channels because they felt like they had grown past 800,000 subscribers and they felt like they were at a point where like they had to deliver to the audience and give them what they wanted. And they felt like there wasn't as much room to experiment and try new things. And so they started this second YouTube channel to just kind of throw things at the wall, try a different style, talk about different topics that otherwise might not be suitable for their audience, which I think is, is super interesting because when you're earlier on, you don't necessarily have to worry about that too much. You know, you, you may not be doing integrations where you maybe have to reach a certain number or you don't get, you know, the full payout from the integration. And so, uh, or you just feel like attached to this number. You feel like, okay, every video I put out gets 200,000 views. So I need, like, if I don't reach that threshold, then I'm going to be like super bummed and depressed. Um, but I think that, that what you're doing now is figuring out, I think it's important to figure out like what you actually enjoy to do the most. And then also what's yes. the best video? Because I found that me talking on camera for, I don't like, that's the least favorite thing that I do <laughs> is like talking on camera. I mean, it's fine. I do it, but I don't like it as much as I like shooting B-roll 
editing, writing, like my, editing is by far my favorite thing to do. And so I try, that's why my videos are so edited. It's because like I enjoy that process the most. That's where I spend the most time on it. And I think that gives me the best return as well. Yeah, I think we're, as I was saying, we're trying, we're experimenting with that. The, for me, talking to someone like you, I could do this every day, all day. Like this gives me so much energy and fulfillment. If I'm doing a super scripted, hello, let me do this. And that kind of drains. So it's basically just experimenting with three different types, like interviews that we can take and repackage. Like we take some of your B-roll and make it into like this kind of cool show. Ones where I'm just talking and ones where it's like, hey, this is a keyword that's popular and scripted. I think what will eventually, you know, kind of like what you talked about is like, eventually you find your own dish. Like here's the flavors that I like putting on my dish that is going to be called the Matt dish or the Noah dish. Yeah, I think that's a great way to look at it because you can't also look at somebody's formula and say, well, that's the way to do it. Because I know so many other people who have done so many different things. And again, it's probably leaning into what you truly enjoy. And I think if you like interviewing, we're obviously all in a tough situation now with, with COVID and everything. So like the in-person interview is tough, but I think like that would be a really interesting place to lean into it is, I mean, I'm always a fan of leaning into higher production value where possible. And obviously it's difficult to do that online and unless somebody's like a filmmaker and they set up a camera and then it's like a little bit high maintenance and there are ways in which you could repackage an interview that's done remotely but leaning into that mm. you can do so much with say if you have a one hour interview with somebody like how many pieces of social content could you break that down into uh how could you then use their voice to tie it into a shorter edited video kind of think totally. of documentary style totally. again like you could have a mix of all these different things that you're talking about like even if you don't like that a roll to camera it may help to do like a huh. little intro huh. what's the a roll it's a roll and b roll right i didn't know there was an a yeah, A is like whenever you're talking to camera, B-roll. I don't know if this is technical or not, or this is something that YouTubers just started <laughs> doing, because I don't even know if I, I used that when I was originally doing stuff. But with YouTube videos, it's so easily split into A and B. And so like A-roll would be you talking on camera. Mm. B-roll would be like obviously what covers up that. Well, I think two things you said is I love the lean in part. Lean into the thing you enjoy. And I think part of your success, the word success is always what we tell others. It's never internal. No one wakes up in the morning and is like, hey, you, Noah, success. But I think part of the reason people like myself and others resonate with you is there's a level of your internal honesty that you're doing this because you're exploring something for yourself. And I think it's obvious, like even in some of my videos, I can tell like I'm doing this, I'm desperate for a view, or I'm desperate for a sub versus this idea of like, hey, I'm really kind of curious to make a video or explore this type of topic. And I think it's that with leaning in that ends up creating the success. I totally feel you. I think that there's no quicker way to find the desperation of how much you want views than by writing tags for your videos. Because <laughs> you're just like, what? Uh, productivity, self-development, self-help, Tim Ferriss. I don't like you just like throw a bunch of names and words and as much as you possibly can. And then you're like, oh my God, like, why am I this desperate? Like, I should just let the content speak for itself. And I don't even know if tags work. I, I actually don't think they do work. But yeah, I, I think it's, again, just making the best thing you possibly can, putting it out there and letting it fail if it fails. And if it, as long as you're proud of what you created, I think that's yes. the like, most important thing. Yes, I think that's so interesting. I, I've been thinking about pride a lot. I'm curious for your answer. I know one of the things I'm most proud of is it's like generally the, some of the hardest things you work on. Yeah, because you get through the point where you hate the project. I think like everybody goes through that thing where in the beginning you love the thing. You, it's just the best thing in the world. 
this could be Seth Godin's dip. And then you get to the point where you absolutely despise it and you don't want to do anything. And then once you get through that and you you can start to love it again. And I've found that path happening, especially on the bigger projects that I work on. I think, again, like we were talking about with the self-love stuff and massaging our faces, you have to also love your work and you have to be able to take a step back and accept the fact that not everything is going to be perfect. But as long as you put everything you had into this thing, then that's the best you could do. You know, what else can you do beyond that? Well, I think part of that, too, is remembering why you're doing it. Because sometimes I'm like, well, why am I doing YouTube? Like, I, I don't need the money. I don't do I need more attention? Like, I like seeing individuals get results. I like seeing when someone responds like, hey, I watched this video. I did this thing. And here's what happened for me. I'm like, awesome. And I think I have to take a step back sometimes and remember that when I'm doing it. I'm like, yes, it's the fourth take of the same A roll. Yeah, it's remembering that, and, you know, come back to the, the bigger purpose of it. So I appreciate that. Yeah, I love that you said that, though, too. It's like the fact that you don't have to do this and uh, just kind of reiterating your why and just getting super clear on that. And I think as anybody who's ambitious, you want to see results and you want to see growth. But also sometimes grow you can't see growth. Sometimes it's happening over the course of a year or two, and you might feel stagnant, but you're still working towards something. And it's not the external growth, it's the internal growth. And eventually, I think if you do work hard enough, you you will start to see those external rewards, but you have to push through the point where uh, you're not getting any feedback or at least any positive feedback. I mean, that's always hard is like when you're not getting that external response. Like yesterday, I was, I was doing pushups every on the minute, 20 to 30 pushups every minute. And I ended up doing 704. And I was like, there's no one watching me. Like, I could lie. <laughs> I, I was on the floor here. And I was like, I'm just doing this for me. And it's just for my own, like, there's not like a competition or anything. And I think there's something there with that. I guess, how did you keep yourself going when you weren't getting this massive success initially with uh, the content creation? People ask this all the time, right? Like, how do I create when nobody's watching? And it goes back to a lot of the themes that we've been talking about. And really, when I think about my origins, it, it wasn't YouTube and it wasn't freelance. It was before that in high school, before YouTube, like 2005 or so. I think YouTube started in 2006, uh, maybe around the same exact time. But it, it was like Charlie bit my finger. It was like the good old days of YouTube. And I just remember making videos for my family and friends, making videos to try to make people laugh, to do like a sketch comedy video. Like I took basically every video class I could in high school and was just always making silly, odd videos to get my close circle of family and friends to react to it. And so if you don't have an audience, just think about a small audience, the people that you do know in your life, your parents or your friends, uh, that you could share a video with. And I think that like Gen Z and, and, and people that are much younger than us are starting to figure that out for themselves now with platforms like Instagram and TikTok where they're getting crazy creative and they're starting to see feedback and results. I think the trap that they have to really pay attention to is that they're not just doing it for that response. They're not just mm -hmm. doing it for the the appraise and the laughs and the likes and the followers and it's so easy to look at people, other people's content and think that the feeling that you get while watching it is the same feeling that you'll have while making it. That you watch like the Casey Neistat vlog and you're like, oh my God, that's so fun, dude. His life is amazing. And then if you 
saw him behind the scenes, it's not how you think it is. <laughs> the making of it is actually much, much more boring than the great music montage with B-roll. And so I think that it was a, uh, that's a huge learning lesson that a lot of people have to go through. Yeah. I remember, do you know Seth Bicax? No. Dude, watch him on YouTube. His show is awesome. Even if you don't like mountain biking, he makes really, he's a great storyteller. And I got a uh, chat with him like two to three years ago. And his videos are phenomenal. And if you watch, when you watch his videos, like my brother's into mountain biking. And so you watch the video and you're like, dude, this guy just mountain bikes all day. It's good and bad sometimes to know what goes on in the kitchen. And he's like, dude, I film for one hour. I bike ride and film for one hour and I'm working on the film for eight hours. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, dude. You don't realize that. You don't you, like nobody. You're right. Nobody ever thinks about what's going on in the kitchen. Yeah. Well, I was thinking something earlier, too. There is something there about like higher production value. Like you were talking about editing and production. Because I think if I have a great message and a great thing that's actually helpful for someone to start a business, I, lately I've been thinking a lot about the, I call it the McDonald's theory. Where like if you eat McDonald's, you're like, well, it's a the dollar hamburger. But if you take the hamburger and put it on a nice plate, that same hamburger, you'll be like, is this, what is it? Is this McDonald's? No, what, what is this? And so I think you have to figure out that balance of like, what's the quality and the production? Like, how are you merging or marrying the two? I'm trying to experiment, but you know, where is that fulcrum? Where's that like pendulum swinging for me? Yeah, I think that investing in the quality of your production, I think it's something that you should always do because, you know, whether it's a film or you're writing, you're always trying, you should always be trying, I think, to make the overall package better. To what degree? It's like, do you need the red cam or can you use, you know, a Canon C200, a used Canon C200 from two years ago? There's so much great quality gear that works really well. I think it's, figuring out the amount of time that you want to invest into it because you're somebody who can afford to hire a really great filmmaker, finding great talent. Obviously, you've already found some great talent people to work with. It's very difficult to do that, to find really, really good people that can match what's in your head and match the vision that you have for something or to even take that further. So that's one thing. But yeah, I do think that you got to figure out what you want to invest your time into. And like, you may not be a filmmaker. You may not be the person that's like figuring out how to light, but you probably have good intuition about what looks good. And, you know, being a content consumer yourself, you should be able to look at it and be like, that's not really on par with, you know, this guy, Seth Bipax. Like, this is not his level of production quality. How can we get to that point? And I think to your point, like the Matt Avella version, like I have to, you know, everyone needs to figure out their way. Like Ali, he's like, yeah, I looked at Matt's videos. I look at this version's videos and then I eventually figure out my voice. And that's something that I'm getting excited about to find my own voice and find my own kind of like path in the content world. And it, it applies to every world. I will say I just got a new Sigma 1.416 millimeter. I never thought I'd be good at taking photos. And uh, I never thought I could actually film or do any of this stuff that's creative. And yeah, it's not exclusive. <laughs> <laughs> I thought that it was just for like these certain people that that had like great hair and tattoos. No, no, no. It's not difficult. Anyone can take a photo. I guess I never thought that being a creative person was part of my DNA or part of what I could do. I always thought that I'm just supposed to be a business person. And I, you know, I was talking with a, a developer I worked with yesterday, Garrett, who's phenomenal in San Francisco. And Garrett's like, yeah, I'm not a business person. You're the business guy. And I was like, it's not exclusive. What you said in this, this chat, which I like, is like, also figure out what you're great at. Figure out what your advantage is. And yours is editing. And doesn't mean you should try to be great at everything, but figure out your advantage. But it was just interesting to also realize, like, you can do other things. We can be more than we limit ourselves. Yeah, I learned that through, you know, my wife has become really a close collaborator. And hmm. that's something that surprised me. 
she's not like with me every second of the way making videos, but like she is my gut check. And like she is really the closest person to my content that understands the ins and outs and why I make stuff and how I make it. And she also understands my audience uh, probably better than me. She's like a brand strategist. So, so she's like really like in tune with that. She's probably in the comment section more than I am just kind of reading and absorbing what people are saying. Oh, uh, interesting. Yeah. What's interesting though is that she had this misconception that she wasn't creative early on because when we first met, she was in data strategy, data analytics. So it was like very much by the numbers. And over the years, she, she moved into this brand strategy position where she had to do more storytelling. And then I remember it being kind of difficult and frustrating in the beginning because I would want to talk about creative stuff, my project, my film. What did you think about it? Do you have any thoughts, any ways to improve? And she would just be like, I, it was good <laughs> and not really have any feedback beyond that. But now it's like, she has really flexed that creative muscle and she's like, she's a far better storyteller than two years ago. And I, she didn't have that expectation as well. And so I think if you kind of let that go, like I'm not this kind of person, I'm not creative or I'm not, I'm not good with money. And if you flip those expectations and you just take an interest, then you, you might actually learn something. How much more strategic is your stuff than people realize? To what degree, like to each video or to like bigger projects? I think the fact that you were starting to say something about your wife looking at comments to understand the questions, to understand the content to create. I think sometimes when people look at a content creator or even a business, they're like, oh yeah, they just put out that video. That's cool. Versus that there's a lot more intention. I think that's a word that you've used a lot. And I really appreciate that. That goes into the which videos to make or how to structure something or the business things you're choosing. My strategy for my YouTube videos, there have been times in the past where I've like asked, like, hey, do you guys, what kind of topics do you want me to be talking about? Especially when the pandemic hit. I'm like, what are you really in need of right now? What are you most interested in learning? And then, you know, I'd have my brother go through every single comment and pull them all out and, and then, you know, share them with me. What are the highlights? What are the big ones? My brother works with me. He's like basically my head of operations and everything. And so I was able to then look at them and get feedback. And it gave me some ideas about videos that I would want to make in the future, maybe some on personal finance. Um, it was kind of like a using my audience as a brainstorming session. But still, at the end of the day, I had to figure out what videos align with what I want to create and what videos also are different. And I try not to make a video about minimalism back to back. In fact, I don't think I ever have. And so I do talk about the same topics all the time. I don't like to repeat it. I like to keep it fresh. I like to keep it different. So every time you watch a video, there's an element that's unexpected. If my audience keeps coming back and back and then I'm saying the same thing in every video, I think I'll certainly start to lose the attention and interest of my audience because they're like, well, I've already heard this. You know what I mean? I've heard this story. I've heard that blah, blah, blah. But if I could, even if I'm telling... You know, if I do a video on minimalism today and in three months I do a similar video on minimalism, if I can attack that from a different angle and tell it in a different way, that even if it's similar notes, similar message, it's a beautiful reminder. And also maybe it's creative and funny in a way that I didn't do before. When it comes to bigger projects like films, launching products or anything like that, there's more strategy that goes into it because it's like a release, right? So we think about how are we going to tease this? How are we going to release it? What does the social content look like for that week? How many social posts do we want to do? Is it Instagram? Is it, and when I say we, it's mostly just me, my wife and, and my brother. <laughs> and so uh, like just figuring out how to actually message that in the best possible way. And that takes strategy and, and, you know, mostly intuition. And it's not really super methodical in terms of like looking at numbers. You did a lot of these challenges over 30 days. What would the Matt Diavella challenge be? 
some people have done this and I think what, what they do oftentimes is like, well, they just pick out like my daily routine and like what I typically do in the day. But I've also seen some people try to do every 30 day challenge that I've done in 30 days, which I do not recommend because it's just, I mean, it's overwhelming. I think I learned from my own experiments that it's better to go slow and steady. And even doing one experiment every 30 days is actually a lot to pack in amongst everything else that we do with our lives. So what would you say yours, like your signature one would be? So like one that I'm known for is the coffee challenge where I go and ask for 10% off of coffee, I get rejected. And then I realize like rejection is not that bad. And life, you know, if you over challenge your fears and you overcome them, you can have more things in life. Yeah, so uh, I, I just saw your Instagram post. You you did one, and then uh, I think Ali Abdal actually commented on it and was like balls of steel. <laughs> but uh, yeah, no, I love that one. That's a really really great challenge. I don't know, mine would probably be much more boring, dude. I don't know, like I don't have any like interesting challenges like that. But I mean, I think what, the one thing that I found about like productivity and avoiding procrastination for me has been to have like a crazy quick morning routine. Like people love like their chakras and they do like these uh, mindfulness meditations and it's like a four hour morning routine. But I found that the best thing for me is just to make a cup of coffee and start writing and just get to work. And like that is something that I have avoided with the pandemic happening and like trying to find comfort in the mornings and listening to a podcast and whatnot. But now I'm like, I think I'm I'm far more productive and I enjoy my days much more when I just have a cup of coffee and I just start writing. So the Matt Diavella challenge is coffee and writing 30 days every day. Coffee and write for 30, an hour every day for 30 days. All right. I dig that. For storytelling, is there any places you can point me selfishly to say, hey, if you're looking to tell better stories or be a better filmmaker, do you have any guidance of books or people to watch, including yourself? I know there's you know, a few YouTubers or classes or courses. In terms of gear... You can look at Peter McKinnon, Matty H, and Potato Jet. Uh, his, his real name is Gene, but he's he's awesome. Oh, also, Caleb Wojcik. Caleb Wojcik's amazing. I certainly watch his videos. Uh, I'm not super into gear. And like when you explained your camera, I was like, I don't know what that is. I don't know what that camera gear is. Because I know my gear really well. And I do a lot of research before I make a purchase. But then I always go to these guys to see how they reviewed it, what they've thought of these products in the past and, and what works well. In terms of storytelling, I think you have to learn through practice and also just continue to pick up inspiration through other people. So I think that originally my videos were a little bit different. Like it was a style of documentary and YouTube and vlogging that were mashed together. That was a little bit different than at the time what was popular on YouTube. And so I think like taking inspiration from other places, but then creating something uniquely your own is probably where you're going to find the best success. So just try to find inspiration from other creators, other filmmakers that inspire you. With your, this is a bigger question, but I'll try to break it down small. With your stuff right now, how much of the revenue is like YouTube ads versus other Netflix world? I think people are curious like where people's revenue comes from. A vast majority comes through integrations, which is like when I say, you know, this video is brought to you by Audible or Squarespace or whatever. And I've got a few brands that I work with. I usually do about two per month. And I would say that's a majority of the income. Other than that, you have Google AdSense, which is just like the videos that ads that play before or after. And then I have Patreon as well, where I create uh, some, uh, where you're actually a patron <laughs> of, where I create additional content and AMA every month and, uh, you know, behind the scenes content whenever I can. And then the Netflix stuff and like feature film projects, that's the smallest portion now. Like it's a big hmm. payout in the beginning. It depends what the deal is, whether you're getting 
you know, residuals on that and like they're paying for it up front or if it's a Netflix original or Hulu original or anything like that, you're likely getting paid a flat fee up front and they're just buying it in perpetuity. So you get that big payout and then you're done. With our last project, they just license it every every couple of years. And so again, like it's it, it's nice, like residual income every quarter we get the payout, but it's certainly not like, you know, doesn't pay the bills. What is one recommendation for myself in minimalism that I could do today? I guess it, it, you you could split it in between the physical clutter and the mental clutter. I think like the physical clutter is easy. You just take a drawer, you know, you, you take a closet and you, you start to figure out what you're actually using and what you're not and what you could give away and what somebody else could actually get more value from. Uh, if it were to be more about like the lifestyle, I think it's being honest with yourself and asking really, really deep questions that you've been avoiding. So what do I want out of life? Where do I want to go? What, who are the people that I want to surround myself with? I think that's probably way more important than the physical clutter is focusing on that, that emotional clutter and, um, you know, living the life that you want to live. Bro, I dig it. That's a wrap. I hope you loved the episode. If you want to dig deeper into Matt Diavella's universe, check out his YouTube channel. You guessed it. Just search for Matt Diavella on YouTube. Also, if you're into documentaries, definitely check out his called Minimalism on Netflix. Next, text a friend you love them. Yo, dog, let's do a digital detox together. And before you go, don't email me at podcast at okdork.com, but tweet me at Noah Kagan about what you thought of this episode. Also, remember to go subscribe to my email list. I put my best tips into a single short email sent every single week and hook up exclusive content to my email subscribers. That's sendfox.com slash Noah. Also check out halldrop.com. That's H-A-U-L drop.com. It is the best place to discover and share real life products from small businesses. If you have a small product or have a small business, put it on there. Or if you're looking to see what's the latest cool products, go to halldrop.com. Finally, a couple of shout outs to my amazing team. None of us can do this alone, people. Special thanks to Jason at podcasttech.com as always for making these podcasts do so dope in his audio editing. Thanks to David, Mitchell, Jeremy, and Michael from the Dork Team for all the magic you gentlemen do. And a final special thanks to my boy from Croatia, Luca Belik, for the support team of everything he's done for the customers at Sumo.com. Just want to let you know, keep doing what you're doing. Appreciate it. Have a lovely day. What's your favorite city?